You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. I am so thankful that we start the week, today being the first day of the week, and you guys, the 8 o'clock service early in the morning, starting our time, starting our week, worshiping Jesus and being in his word. I can't think of a better way uh, to begin our our week together. Uh, The title of the message this morning is The Father's Anguish. The Father's Anguish. Uh, We're going to be looking at Genesis 22. And it's a picture, if you will, of what God experienced, what God the Father experienced in the crucifixion of Jesus, which is interesting to ponder. Uh, We all know John 3.16, right? Uh, Say it with me, if you will, John 3.16, out loud, a unified voice together, if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Life now and life everlasting. Amazing verse. Amazing to to, to ponder. The problem is, is we're so familiar with it, it's hard for us to grasp its depth. It's hard for us to comprehend the fullness of its meaning. And we study the cross, and uh, we do so on Good Friday and on Easter and at various times throughout the year. And as we do, we are always in awe of what Jesus did for us. And we study the cross, and we see that it is uh, telling the story from Jesus' perspective. He was beaten. He was marred. They put a bag over his head. They punched him in the face. They said, prophesy to us, king, who hit you? They mocked and jeered him. They dressed him in a king's attire, uh, put a, a reed as a scepter in his hand, and said, hail the king of the Jews, as they were mocking him. And we get this first person view of the humility and the cruelty that we inflicted on Jesus. But we get it from the perspective of Jesus. Most of the scriptures that we look at as well give us the the perspective from Jesus' perspective. Amazingly, Isaiah, 700 years, seven centuries before Jesus even came, gives us exquisite detail of what the cross was like from Jesus' perspective. Uh, Here's a verse for you on your screens. Let's read this. Um, I guess for some of you on this side, you're going to have to use this screen now, right, with a drum shield. Do you like the drum shield there? Yeah, Yeah, better? How many think better? How many of you think worse? How many of you just don't care? Yeah. (laughs) Let's read this verse. Uh, uh, Read with me in a unified voice. He, Jesus, is despised and rejected by men. And we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. 
Next slide, please. But he was wounded, which means, by the way, profaned or defiled. Uh, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised, which means crushed, for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Yeah, we read that. And he was bruised. He was pierced. He was crushed for our iniquities. And we get this idea, this perception from Jesus' vantage point, what he went through for us. Uh, Psalm 22 is another uh, prophetic picture of Jesus on the cross from Jesus' perspective. Amazing. This one written not 700 years before Jesus, but a thousand years before Jesus came. And look how vividly descriptive it is. Take a look at this. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. Notice that incredible. My bones are out of joint. You can imagine uh, your hands pierced, you're hanging there, uh, and your shoulders start to dislocate. And he describes what he's going through. On the cross, he said, I thirst. And here we get a 1,000-year preview of that. Uh, My heart melted like wax within me. We know when they stuck the spear in his side that his heart had ruptured. It poured out blood and water. The pericardial sac had uh, filled with fluid and and, uh, uh, just an amazing prophecy. Let's go on. The rest of the verse. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Wow. Again, a first-person picture of what Jesus experienced, the pain and anguish as they spat on him, as they ridiculed him and mocked him from the cross. Our text today in Genesis 22, uh, we're going through the Bible verse by verse. Open up to Genesis 22 if you're not there already. Uh, We got as far as chapter 21 last week. This week we'll jump in chapter 22 And our text today uh, was written uh, as as, uh, giving us a description of what happened on 2051 B.C. We jump ahead an, an entire millennia from the psalm that we just read. And now we're at 2051 B.C. And we're looking at this life of Abraham, this walk of Abraham. And today, God is going to ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. And as we look at that, we look at it with shock and horror. What kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? That is perverse. That is wicked. And uh, I know that atheists, skeptics, love to use this passage to ridicule God and to make him... Uh, seem as if uh, he's a monster or something. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, before he died, used to love to, love to use this uh, verse, uh, this passage in his debates to ridicule Judaism and Christianity. Uh, and yet, uh, could it be that God is doing something far greater than Christopher Hitchens could ever grasp or understand? 
Could it be that God is giving us a picture, a vivid picture of what the Father went through when Jesus went to the cross? We have a prophetic picture written a thousand years in advance, written 700 years in advance, and all through the Gospels of what Jesus went through on the cross. But I would present to you today, we are looking at a passage of Scripture that reveals what God the Father went through. The pain and anguish that God the Father went through when Jesus went to the, to the cross. And so the title of the message this morning, The Father's Anguish. And we are looking at a passage of Scripture where God is moving prophetically and incredibly powerful. And it is my hope that after today's study, you will never look at John 3.16 the same again. That even when you quote it at a football game, as the guy holds up the sign in the goalpost, your heart will be moved with the incredible depth of God's love for you and the anguish that the Father experienced to bring this truth to us. Uh, so let us pray as we open God's word. Lord, we come before you this morning. And Lord, again, as I mentioned earlier, we are so thankful to begin our week worshiping you, putting you first in our life. Lord, I ask your blessing on each one here as they have done so in faith. And Lord, we've come. We now bow before your feet. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. For life is worth the living because you live, Jesus. But Lord, unless you reveal yourself to us, life is not worth the living. And so, Lord, reveal yourself to us anew and afresh today. Help us to see your heart and all that you have done from the foundation of the world to purchase and to complete and to fulfill and to bring to pass our salvation. For we prayed in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things. After what things? Well, last week we saw Abimelech had come to Abram to make a deal. This king, right? And now it comes to pass after these things. After, actually long after these things. You see, there is about a 30-year gap between chapter 21 and chapter 22. And notice what it says. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. Lord, it's been a long time. It's so good to hear your voice again. Oh, Lord. I'm so glad you're speaking to me. There are seven times God appeared to Abram, uh, each one very significant. Uh, here, we, as we look at this one, uh, this one is going to be like any of the other appearances. And I'm sure Abraham at this moment has no idea what God is going to present and what is coming down the road. God, so good to hear from you. So good to hear your voice speaking to me. Verse 2. Then he, that's God, God the Father, said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. I'd encourage you to underline the words, your only son. Whom you love, I'd encourage you to underline that word love. 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. Uh, Some interesting things here. God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. That word love, I would encourage you to underline it in your Bible. And this is fascinating to me because it is the first time in all of the Bible that the word love is used. And that's astonishing. Why? Because the Bible is a book that is full of love. God created the world because he loves you. And you would think that love would be scattered all through the first 21 chapters of the Bible. Surely God loved creation when he made the universe. And he said, oh, this is good. It could easily say, and the Lord said, it was good and I love it. But it doesn't. Surely when God made Adam, he goes, oh, Adam and Eve, oh, this is very good. And it could say, and I love it, and I love them, but it doesn't. Surely we could read Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, and they loved him, and they did, but it doesn't. Surely you would think with Abel, as he's offering and worshiping God and bringing his best to the altar, that he would be in awe of God's love and he would respond with God's love to him. And it could say those things, but it doesn't. Surely with Noah, a man who finds grace in the eyes of God, and God preserves his life and the life of his family and all who would enter into the ark with him. Oh, God loved them. But it doesn't. And even though the Bible is full of love, it's who God is. That is his character trait. That is his attribute above all. Even though God is uh, lots of love, now it is the first mention of the word love. And the mention, the place where God chooses to use the word for the first time, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. When God introduces us to the word love in the Bible, it is the image of a father's love for his only begotten son. And God says, this is how I want to introduce the word in my word, the Bible. Wow, amazing. What's fascinating to consider is to look at how the New Testament uses the word for the first time. We just saw how the Old Testament uses the word for the first time. Well, the first use of of the word in love in the New Testament is also fascinating. It's in the book of Matthew. Uh, Take a look at this verse. This is Matthew 3.16. Let me hear you read this. And when he, that's Jesus, had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Rest of the verse. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Wow. 
another time. New Testament, first time the word love is used. This is my only begotten son whom I love. Exact same use as in the Old Testament. How about in the book of John? Uh, do, you re- do you remember? Uh, uh, we see these, these parallels, right? The book of John, the very first time the word love is mentioned. Do you remember where it is? Well, we quoted it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And uh, uh, we see this, uh, this powerful similarity there. Uh, so he tells Abram, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And you say, only son, that's not quite right. For Isaac is not his only son. Who's his other son? Ishmael. And yet Ishmael was the fruit of the flesh, was the product of the flesh, was the product of unbelief. And God does not recognize that which we do in unbelief. He only recognizes that which we do in faith. And may I say, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? You read the book of Hebrews, and you read about these men of faith, right? And God washes away all their sin because they're in Christ. And he says, by faith. And it tells what they did. And it doesn't talk about any of their faults. It's just all their righteousness because God only remembers uh, or, or he chooses to forget or he washes away and never brings it up again. Uh, the things that we do in the flesh. And God here tells Abram, Abram, take your son, your only son, Isaac. He is the child of promise. He is the fruit of our relationship. He is the byproduct of your walk of faith. He is what I am doing in your life. Take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him what? What does he ask him to offer him as? A burnt offering. What is a burnt offering? A burnt offering, uh, there's a lot of offerings in the Bible. There's seven, seven different offerings that God would give in the, in the book of Leviticus when all this was laid out. Uh, there was a meal offering. And you could give a meal offering, and, and that would be like uh, some, some produce from your farm or uh, you know various uh, crops that you have, and you would bring it to God. It was like the, uh, the, the abundance, the first fruits of the crop, you would bring it to God as a meal offering. It was a, way of, it was a fellowship offering. It was a way of saying, Lord, thank you so much for this abundant harvest that you're giving me and all that you have, everything comes from you, and it was a fellowship offering. That was a meal offering. Uh, there were also vow offerings. If you would make a vow to God, oh, God, I, I want to dedicate my life to this or whatever. I'm going to go on a missions trip or whatever. You could take a vow offering, and uh, that was another kind of offering. Uh, in addition to uh, meal and vow offerings, there were sin offerings. If you committed a sin, uh, David slept with Bathsheba, for example. Uh, you had a specific sin that you were aware of. And you would come and you would give a sin offering. And you say, Lord, forgive me. And you would put your hands on this spotless lamb. And you'd put your hands on the head of that animal. And you would confess your sin with your hand on that animal. And it was symbolic of your sin transferring from you 
to another being. Penal substitutionary atonement is the theological term. And then you would take a sharp knife, and there in front of the priest at the altar, you would slit the lamb's throat, and it would squeal and yell and writhe in pain as it died there. You say, how barbaric, how... And then that lamb would be taken and be put on the altar. It was a sin offering. It was a picture of Jesus on the cross, all pointing to him. him the, the substitutionary atonement, him taking our sin. And so there were sin offerings. Uh, there were peace offerings. If you gave a, a peace offering, if you had... Uh, 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 unexpected blessing in your life. You just got a big bonus. You would give a peace offering to the, to the Lord. Uh, if uh, you had something you were super thankful for, you would give a peace offering to the Lord. Uh, there were free, free will offerings, which were offerings of gratitude. Just like, Lord, you're so good. You know, Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy on our life. Uh, there were guilt offerings. And you say, what's the difference between a guilt offering and a sin offering? A guilt offering was if you defiled something that was holy. Uh, maybe you profane the Sabbath, or maybe you took God's name in vain. You have a guilt offering. You would then give a, uh, an offering that way. All that to say, a lot of different offerings. Uh, and in all of these offerings that I just mentioned, these six offerings, all of them, you would partake, or the priest would partake, you or the priest would partake in the meat of that offering, or the uh, you know, if it was a grain offering, if it was a meal offering, the, the, the produce of that offering, you would partake with the priest or the priest would partake depending on the offering. But on a burnt offering, it was unique. A burnt offering, the priest or the person offering the, the offering wouldn't partake of anything. The entire, entire animal was offered as a sacrifice to God, and all of the animal would be burned and consumed on the altar. It was an, a, a, an offering that uh, represented total consecration or total dedication to God. If you were going to uh, uh, do something and you just said, Lord, I just want to rededicate my life to you. I've made a mess of things. I want to rededicate my life to you. I want to live completely for you. You would offer a burnt offering. And again, uh, the priest or the offerer would take no part on it. All of it would be consumed on the offer. It was a, interestingly enough, it was an offering for general sin, not a specific sin. If you had a specific sin, you had to do a sin offering. This was for general sin. And it's interesting, this is what he asks Isaac to be. I, Abraham, I want you to make a burnt offering, but I don't want you to use an animal. I want you to use your only begotten son whom you love. Wow. Can you imagine how painful these words were for Abram? Can you imagine what was going on in his heart? God, why? You've got to be kidding me. What? What? This is the child of promise. This is the son I waited for. I waited a hundred years of my life. It was a miraculous conception. I mean, Lord, you did this work. You gave me this son. Isaac is now 30-something years old. 
and the relationship between a father and a son, your only son whom you love deep. Lord, why? Why? No doubt uh, Abraham had seen human sacrifices before. They were common in pagan traditions. They were common in pagan religions. But know this, God hates them. And God is very much against human sacrifice. In Deuteronomy 18, as, long, as well as with a myriad of verses I could have brought to you uh, that clearly show God detests and forbids human sacrifice. Uh, here's one of them for you, just so you can uh, have proof. Let me hear you read this. This is uh, uh, God giving the commandments through, uh, through Moses on the... Uh, well, you, you know what I mean. Uh, verse 10. Uh, there shall not be found among you Anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Uh, crystal clear. It was common in that day, by the way, to offer your babies to Molech as an offering. And today as a nation, we are doing that way more, way more than they ever did. Uh, detestable. It's an abomination to the side of the Lord. Make sure you vote your, your, value, your biblical values on November, uh, especially on Prop 1 in California that wants to be a sanctuary state for anybody in the country. And Gavin Newsom spending hundreds of thousands of dollars putting up billboards all across the nation to say, come to California to get your abortions, even offering to pay for it. And why is he doing that? Well, for his own political career, because he wants to be what? I mean, crazy, crazy. Uh, make sure we vote properly. Um, uh, rest of the verse. Uh, did we read this? No. Uh, who burns his son or daughters as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a wizard or a necromancer, necromancer, that's a word, isn't it? A necromancer, what's a necromancer? Uh, a necro, uh, we're meaning dead, where uh, someone who communicates with the dead. A necromancer, or whoever does any of these things, is what? An abomination to the Lord. So we know firsthand that God hates uh, human sacrifice. It is against his will, and God would never ever want a human sacrifice and yet god tells abram here i want you to offer your son why what is god doing when god does things that are really difficult to understand it's good to put the car in park and to really start meditating on what god's doing here god is using abraham to further reveal god's plan of salvation throughout the ages uh and uh he he is uh, setting this up here, and he's going to show uh, just how much anguish the heart of the Father goes through in this. Uh, he tells him to go where to do this offering. Let me hear you. Where does he say to go? Moriah. Moriah. Uh, the exact same place where 2,000 years later, Jesus would be offered up as a burnt offering for the sins of the whole world uh, on our behalf, uh, the exact same place. So let's go on in our text. Let's take a look. Verse 3. 
So Abram rose early in the morning. Uh, does that not blow your mind? He rises early in the morning to go do this thing. What incredible obedience. And what a long night it must have been for Abram. I bet he didn't sleep at all. I bet he was up all night going, Lord, what the heck? A deeply grieved, Lord, give me understanding. I don't understand what you're doing. But he arises early in the morning. And he saddles his donkey. And he took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose. And he went to the place which God had told him. To Moriah. And then look at this. Uh, underline this. Then on the what? The third day. Abram lifted up his eyes. And he saw the place afar off, the place where God had told him. And with tears flowing down his eyes, he looks at that place and he ponders, I'm going to lose my son here. And tears flowing down his face. I'm sure Isaac and the rest of the group that are with him are looking at Abram and I'm sure it's been a solemn three-day journey. Abram probably not speaking anything the whole time. And all of the group can feel like, wow, there's something different about this. I mean, we've gone and worshiped God before. We've built altars before. Uh, Abram's worshiped this God his whole life, and yet this trip is different. Abram not speaking a word, crying the entire time, not sleeping at night, up all night. And now he sees the mount where it's going to happen. And I imagine he burst into convulsing and crying. Why a three-day journey, by the way? Uh, why does God tell him he's there in Beersheba? Uh, why does God tell him, why not tell him a place that's closer? Uh, well, it just so happens in, in God's divine sovereignty that it's a three-day journey. Why three days? Because in the eyes of the father, Isaac is as good as dead from the day that God gave the command. And so Isaac in the eyes of the father has been dead for how long? Three days. How long was Jesus dead for? Wow. Wow. Again, a foreshadow, a, a, a prophetic foreshadow, all of this. And he sees the place so far off. And I'm sure he burst into tears. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey the lad and I will go yonder and worship. I want you to, the word lad there is really a bad translation. You might even have a, a footnote in your Bible. Uh, the commentators, I mean, the, the translators meant well, but, but uh, it makes Abram's, excuse me, Isaac seem like he's just a little boy. He's not. Uh, the word lad there, you can circle it, and young men, the exact same word in Hebrews, excuse me, in the Hebrew. So, uh, they translated it different, shouldn't have, uh, it should both say young men, right? Uh, Isaac was about 30 years old here. Uh, and notice what he says, you guys stay here. Isaac and I, we are going to go, and he says, we're going to go yonder and do what? Worship. Circle that word. First use of the word worship in the Bible. And we will come back to you. 
So Abram took the wood of the burnt offering. And notice this. What does he do with the wood? Go ahead and read it for me. Laid it on his son Isaac. Uh, What does that remind you of? The cross. As Jesus carried the wood on his back to go to Golgotha. Just amazing. Uh, Now, I want you to put yourself in Abraham's perspective here. Imagine the pain and the anguish that Abram is going through. Uh, I have four children. And as a dad, I know uh, this love that I have for my kids transcends any other kind of love that I've ever experienced in my life. I remember when my firstborn, Jordan, was very young. Uh, He had problems with his eustachian tubes clogging, and he would get these horrible ear infections just as a baby, right? He's only like 10 months old. And he would get these fevers that would spike super high in the middle of the night. And he was in tremendous pain, just crying. And I remember holding him in the middle of the night, crying with him, just like, oh, I would do anything to just take that child's pain. And I couldn't do anything. And I remember one night in particular, the fever spiked so high, it got up to, we're taking it like every five minutes, right? And it gets up, and it gets up to 104. And we know that 104, we call the emergency room and say, you know, it's our first kid, we're panicking. And they say, hey, you've got to cool him down, man. Put him, in a, put him in a cold tub. And so you take that child who's, right, you know, just full of pain and crying and really uncomfortable and and you put them in that cold water, and they just cry like crazy. And I remember thinking, oh, Lord, I'd do anything. I'd do anything to take this from them. I remember my son, Nathan. He was the high school pastor when we, uh, about four years ago here at the church. Uh, um, I think it was four years ago. And uh, he was with some uh, youth, and uh, he's not really a, a, a great skateboarder, and these kids were... He was with a couple kids who were, he was trying to help, and, and uh, they went to skate to go get some tacos at a taco shop, and they went down this really steep hill, and they, you know, being young, they tried to get enough speed going down the hill to propel them up the hill, and uh, he got to the bottom and couldn't make the turn and crashed and fractured the back of his skull, completely crushed it in. He seized instantly on the spot. They called 911, paramedics come instantly. He's not breathing, he's seizing, he's shaking. They intubate him there on the spot. I get the call. I was with a missionary uh, from an, doing a water project in Africa. And I get the call at this luncheon that I'm at and, hey, your son's been in an accident. And I go to the hospital and I see the doctor and he says, this is hanging by a thread. The back of his skull is completely crushed in. The impact was so severe that the side of the skull from the impact caved in this way, on this side. Even though he hit the back of his head, this side of the skull cracked and came in this way, uh, came in like this. And the, the impact here from the skull cut a main artery. He's got a massive bleed right here. It pushed the whole brain over this way. Because when it cracked here, it pushed the whole brain this way. They said, we don't know what kind of son you're going to have if he makes it. And they rush him into surgery immediately. 
And by God's grace, he goes from the accident happening to the surgery table in under one hour because he's got this massive brain bleed, intubated, completely knocked out. In the next weeks, we're just filled with fear and one, you know, concern over what's going to happen. And this surgery was successful. They put a big titanium plate in his head that's there to this day. And, and um, I remember him starting to wake up. Uh, and uh, Nathan is a, a, a boy just full of joy. He makes the family laugh all the time. It's God's gift to him, right? And, and he would wake up and he would be violent. And we would have to restrain him, tie him down. And uh, he was intubated and we, we didn't know where his mind was, if he would, his mind would ever work again. And, and the moment he would try to start waking up, he had been unconscious now for days, and the moment he would try to start waking up, he would just fight, and they would come and knock him out with meds. And we would just cry and weep. And I remember thinking, oh, Lord, I would do anything to take his place. I would do anything and that's just the heart of a father. Nothing unique about me. All of you would do the same. Uh, this is what Abram is experiencing as God asks him to do this uncautionable act. And God, what, what are you doing? Well, may I present to you that God is trying to show us what he himself experienced and went through, showing his anguish in sending his son to go to a cross in our place. And if we, being sinful, know how to give good gifts to our children and love our children, would do any, imagine what a holy God must be going through as he sends God the Son to the cross. This is what Abraham is experiencing right here. This is what he is going through right here. Uh, back to verse 5, Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. My son and I will go yonder and worship. Crazy. And we will come back to you. The faith that Abraham has, what did he say? We'll come back to you. Do you realize what a burnt offering is? A burnt offering means fully consumed by fire, charred to ash. And Abram says, we will come back to you. Verse 6, so Abram took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. Again, I can't even imagine Abraham's intense pain, tears flowing from his eyes the entire time, probably not even speaking a word. Isaac, not knowing anything that's going on, going, what is with dad? This is crazy, right? Verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abram, his father, and he said, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. He said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac now going, God, I mean, Dad, I don't understand what is going on here. I see all the implements, but I don't see the lamb. And Abram said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb 
for a burnt offering. Uh, if you, if, uh, in the New King James, it says for himself. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word for is not there. Uh, the King James translates it better. It says God will provide himself. I'd encourage you, I uh, wouldn't normally do this, but here's a place where it would be okay. You can scratch out that word for. It's not in the original Hebrew. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Uh, Abram telling Isaac, Isaac probably wondering, what does that mean? God will provide himself a lamb. Uh, Abram says, the, the lad, the young man and I will go yonder and worship. And here we see amazingly, amazingly, just like it was amazing, that was the first usage of the word love, amazingly, this is the first usage of the word worship. Crazy. The first usage of the word worship is here with a picture of Abraham offering his son. We think of worship, and we commonly use the word as singing songs to, to the Lord, right? We commonly use the word as, as maybe the more accurate word would be praise. Uh, and praise is wonderful. Singing uh, songs to God is wonderful. It is a form of worship for sure. But I want you to know worship is a lot more than the song that we sing. Worship is a lot more than an emotional response to God when, we, when we're aware of his presence or when we're cognizant of, uh, of him. It, it's more than just an emotional response. And I want you to know true worship is when we submit our will to his will. That is the definition of worship. And God could have used the word worship all through the Bible. Clearly, Abel was worshiping God, but it doesn't use the word. Clearly, Noah was worshiping God, but it doesn't use the word. And the first time in God's sovereignty that he chooses to use the word worship is here in this story as Abraham lays down his will to do the will of the Father, even when he doesn't understand, even when it's painful, even when it's costing him the very apple of his eye, even when he doesn't understand anything that God is doing and working, and how could he? Uh, but he says, I don't understand it, but I know this. My God is a loving God. He is holy, he is just, he is righteous. He has made me a promise through this son. And even though I don't understand how he could ever come back from a burnt offering, I will trust him. I will trust him. And what a high picture of worship that gives us. Worship is hard for us at times because we are finite. We are limited. God is eternal and omniscient. Therefore, oftentimes, we cannot understand God's will. And things happen in our life, and we cry out, God, why? Why? I imagine God, uh, Abram is asking God why. Lord, I don't understand this. Why would you ask this of me? This is the child of promise. This is the, the icon of my faith. This is what uh, you had promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Isaac has not had any children yet. You said through Isaac you would build a great nation. Lord, I don't understand. Well, how could we? We're finite. How could we understand these things? 
There are a lot of things uh, I don't understand with my finite, limited capacity. But it's here that we have to trust in an almighty God. Uh, there was a man at my daughter's uh, graduation who gave the commitment, commencement speech. His name is Nabil Qureshi. Uh, he is a, uh, uh, a brilliant young man. He was raised in a Pakistanian Muslim home to a devout Muslim family. He is a brilliant man. He's got multiple PhDs. He's got a medical PhD and a theological PhD and uh, just incredibly brilliant. And in med school, he had a friend by the name of Dave Wood who began to discuss with him the historical accuracy of Jesus Christ. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the historical accuracy of all of that. And for over a year, this friend, Dave Wood and Nabil, would discuss. And through that, Nabil converted from Islam to Christianity. He says it is the most expensive decision he ever made. It cost him all his, all his family, his Muslim friends, and it, tremendously high. Uh, Nabil went on to become a Christian apologist who uh, was working with RZIM Ministries, Ravi Zacharias, and he went and spoke to millions of young college students at over 100 universities all over the world, uh, universities including uh, Oxford and Dartmouth and Cornell and Johns Hopkins and a, a myriad of others. And uh, he wrote a couple, he wrote several books, wrote, I think he wrote like six or seven books, uh, uh, many of them bestsellers. His first book was titled Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. Wow. And he had a powerful voice. He would go to these uh, universities and he would discuss, he would debate the, facility, the, the uh, fallacies of Islam and the historical truths of Christianity. And he was a powerful witness. And at 2016, he's only 33 years old, he gives the commencement speech at my daughter's graduation from Biola University. And there at that commencement speech, he informs us that he has stage four stomach cancer. This brilliant voice on such a needed subject, Islam and Christianity and the fallacies of Islam and the historical accuracy. And he was brilliant. I mean a savant, just a, a mastermind, an amazing orator. You would hang on his every word. And he speaks at this commencement speech at my daughter's graduation. And the title of his message, Fulfill Your Ministry. Wow. He died a year later. And you look at that and you say, God, why? 
If ever we needed a voice, a clarion call that could bring light to the wicked deceptions of Islam that treat women like objects and beat them and sub subject to them where they, they can't even... You, you understand all that goes on there. Why? Why? I remember being baffled. And a myriad of other things that I've been baffled at at my walk with God. But I know this. God is sovereign. He is just. He is righteous. And Abram, as he struggles this same thing, and I want you to know true worship is submitting our will to the will of God, even when we don't understand. And I know all of us have things in our lives that we say, God, why? God is sovereign. And he does things that are far beyond our ability to grasp or understand. Abram, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go and offer him as a burnt offering. And Abraham, I'm sure, has no idea that he is prophetically acting out Jesus' death and resurrection. No idea that he is being used by God to show generations for millennia to come. The heart of the broken heart of a father. The broken heart of God. And what God experienced in sending his son Jesus to the cross. How could he understand? How could he know? And yet God is using him in such a powerful way. And may I ask you, aren't you glad that Abraham was obedient so that you can understand the heart of God and that you can see God through Abram's life? Just amazing. Just amazing. And here we see how incredible the love of a father uh, towards uh, us to offer his son on our behalf. I would have done anything to take my little baby's place when he had the ear infection. I would have done anything to take my son's place when he had that skull fracture. And I'm sure Abram would have done anything to take. And God had the power to do something. And he didn't. Because he loves you that much. And that is amazing to ponder. And yet we have the audacity to say, God, if you love me, Help me get this job. Are you kidding me? God, if you love me, why did this happen? Are you kidding me? And may we grasp the depth of the Father's anguish in giving his only begotten Son on our behalf. As here God has put a living play on for us to understand. Abram doesn't understand all that God is doing. How could he? But he trusts God and he worships God. That is what worship is, uh, putting God's will above our own. Uh, there is a Bible verse, by the way, that gives us amazing insight into what was going on in Abraham's mind during this time. As he pondered for three days, my son is dead. God's Asked me to kill my son. And a verse that gives us an insight into Abraham's mind during this three-day journey. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's take a look on the screens. Let me hear you read. By faith, Abram, when he, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Let's hold there a second. He who received the promises of the Abrahamic covenant... 
that God was going to make a nation out of this son, Isaac. He offered up his only begotten son. Rest of the verse. Of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a what? Figurative sense. Also received him what? What does he mean? Also received him what? As resurrected from the dead in a figurative sense. For the day God issued the command to offer him as a burnt offering, Isaac was as good as dead in the father's eyes. God had commanded it. And in a figurative sense, he received him as resurrected from the dead. Why? Because God is giving a prophetic picture in all of this. Isn't that amazing? And Abram had enough faith to say, God is able to raise him from the ashes of a burnt offering. Because I know God has promised me that this son was the promised son with whom the nations would come. Just ast astonishing. Astonishing. Uh, now, I am so encouraged to know that God will never ask anything of you and me like this, right? This is a one-time deal that God was doing something very uh, uh, unique uh, to show the most important event in the history of the world, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Have you ever wondered, why didn't God just put Jesus on the cross right in the Garden of Eden when Adam, Adam and Eve sinned, right? Well, here's why. We want to understand it. And so the Bible says that in the fullness of time, or in other words, at just the right time, God gave his son. And he wanted to give these stories to us so that we had the full depth of understanding of what God went through and the high price of our redemption. Uh, God will never give anything like us, uh, this to us, but may we on smaller matters, when we don't understand God's will, may we do what? May we worship. May we worship. May we say, my will doesn't matter, my understanding doesn't matter, God, I'll put your will above my own. Uh, let's uh, look, look what happens in this story, it's so amazing. Uh, verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there. That's the mountain of the, uh, Mount Moriah. And Abraham built an altar there. And there I can imagine uh, the tears flowing down his face. Abraham had built a lot of altars in his day, but none like this one. And there as Isaac watches him, Dad, you want me to help? No, 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 no. And he builds this altar. How, how quickly do you think he built it? I bet he waited. I bet he did it really slow thinking of my last moments with my son. There he builds an altar. And Isaac asking, Dad, I don't understand. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And he placed the wood on the altar. And he bound Isaac, his son. And he laid him on the altar upon the wood. Uh, as he's building the altar, at some point, Abram tells Isaac, Isaac, I don't understand this, but God has asked me to sacrifice you. Abram is 133 years old. Isaac is 33 years old. Isaac could have easily 
hit his dad in the stomach one time, knocked the wind out of him and said, I'm out of here. But he willingly went through it. And Abraham binds his son's hands behind his back, it tells us here. Bound Isaac, his son, lays him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And I wonder, what did Isaac see in his father's face as he lifted that knife? How long did he hold the knife up there? His tears flowing down his face. Sitting there saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. Lord, strengthen me. I can't do this. And Isaac would see the tears of the face of a father. I can't even imagine. And here we see the picture of the face of God. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said to him, Abram, Abram. And so he said, here am I. And notice this, it's the angel of Yahweh. And look at verse 12. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to harm him. For I know that you fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible tells us. I know that you fear God. You care about what God says more than what you think. You care about what God says more than what man thinks. You fear God, since you have not withheld your only son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes. He looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went, and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide. Or in Hebrew, Yahweh Yirai. The Lord will provide. And notice this. I want you to underline these words. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day. To this day. Moses now writing quite a bit later he says, it's still said, the Lord will provide, and it's still said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Moses knew that this day was still yet to come. Moses didn't say, as it is written, in the mountain of the Lord, it was provided, as if it was the bull that was caught in the, the lamb that was caught in the thicket, right? He didn't say, as, as it was provided, he knows that it's still prophetic, in the mountain of the Lord, look at these words, underlie them, it shall be provided. Future tense. What is Moses writing of? The death and resurrection of Jesus. So here an incredible uh, prophecy, just amazing. God withheld Father Abraham from sacrificing his only begotten son. But 2,000 years later, on the exact same mountain, God the Father would offer his son and no one would withhold him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And in Isaiah 53 and in Psalm 22 and in the Gospels, we are told of the inconceivable anguish that Jesus the Son went through on Calvary's cross. But here in Genesis 22, we see the inconceivable anguish the Father went through in giving his Son Jesus on the cross as displayed through the life of Abraham. I want to close by giving you uh, one more word. Uh, where did all this happen? Moriah. Who named it that? God named it that. Moriah. Moriah. I named my daughter that name, Moriah. Moriah is a compound Hebrew word. It is a word made up of two words. It is the word ra'ah, which means to see. And Yahweh, which means Jehovah. Ra'ah Yahweh. Uh, to see Jehovah. What did God name the name of this place where all this was going to be done? A place where you could see Yahweh. The Bible says, no man can see God and live. And yet here on Mount Moriah, through the offering of the one true God, giving his one only begotten son, we see Yahweh. We see the heart of God. What an amazing name. Moriah, to see Yahweh. Here we see God's love for us. God the Father giving God the Son who willingly goes to the cross as an offering for our sin. And uh, just amazing to consider. We know all of this happened because God tested Abraham. And when God tests us, something miraculous happens. God is revealed in and through our lives. If you are going through a test, if you are going through a trial, keep your eyes fixed and focused on God. Worship him, obey him, put his will above your own, even when you don't understand it. And through your life, people will see God, just as through Abraham's life, we saw Moriah to see Yahweh. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.